and uh, uh, that's that's later. Um, but um, Bob's also doing the six o'clock service at Mansfield tonight, and um, he's he is he is he carries great energy uh, for being a little older in years now. But we just sort of thought that you know we'd let him be at his best at eleven and at six, uh, but of course that left the nine o'clock. Uh, and we don't want in any way to feel that God doesn't want to say something right here and now. We're not here by chance. We're here uh, in God's purpose. So I'd like, if you've got a Bible, we're not going to read the whole of the chapter, but you may just want to keep it open or just refer to it as we go through to go to 2 Samuel chapter 8. Christian asked if I'd just uh, share at the 9. And whilst that we, we, we set a little series up that we've laid a foundation for last week, moved into, called Defeating. And uh, this, this message, in some respects, is not part of the series, and yet it is, because the theme will sort of continue to roll out. But uh, the, the thought that we're going to run with just over the next few weeks, as we did last week, Defeating the Blues, and that whole sense of, of uh, pushing back on um, that sense of being downcast in spirit, because God wants us to hope in him. Uh, Christian next week is going to deal with dealing with the reds and the obvious implications of that, dealing with the greens, dealing with the yellows, dealing with the beige. And uh, the fact is that God wants us to, both individually and corporately, be people that are experiencing great victories in our life. Now, the dangers of all of that in terms of Christian walk at time is twofold. Um, We've got the pessimists that can never see anything that uh, is forward advancing. Um, and we talked a little bit about that last week. The other side of that, of course, is we've got, and, and, and our type of church is perhaps a little bit prone to that, is the triumphalist. In other words, we don't even see, never mind, never, never mind about uh, uh, victory, we don't even see any challenges. In other words, we're just blazing through, uh, we're using sort of hyped language, um, and sometimes actually that doesn't help people whatsoever because they actually sort of lock into the fact that this is all a bit unreal. Um, and just going back to Julie's point about Stephen Hackney, one of our pastors served the Lord faithfully in Clifton for a number of years. I really encourage you to come that night because it is all about victory. Um, and it really is. But it's all about reality as well. And a man that comes through uh, something hugely traumatic with his faith intact on the other side. There's good news to all of that as well in terms of Steve's life, his personal life. And we rejoice in all of that. Um, but that book is finding a residence in people's hearts, both, both believers and unbelievers. And uh, we thank the Lord for that. And I, I, I hope that you sort of capture the heart of Christian and myself and others that share uh, in, in that whole sort of journey of arena. And I really want to encourage us this morning to be people that believe for victory. Uh, but we face the reality of all that in terms of our lives and the challenges um, that it brings. So 2 Samuel chapter 8 just picking up on this whole thought of defeating. I'll read just the first uh, verse and then, and then towards the end I'll read, a verses, uh, I'll read a, one of the verses near the end. So it says this, In the course of time, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. And he took uh, Methek Amnar from the control of the Philistines. And so it goes on. And in verse 13 it says, David became famous after he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. He put garrisons through Edom and all the Edomites became subject to David. And the Lord gave David victory wherever he went. Defeat him. 
It may seem a bit of an obscure chapter and uh, you might want to read it through sometime during the week. There's one or two quite graphic details in the context of the Old Testament of David's armies dealing with the enemy tribes. But it really does just capture the heart of where we're at in this early summer season of ministry because God does want us to be a people that know victory and in knowing victory, see things defeated in our lives. The story of David, of course, the life of David is amazing. It, it's, uh, it, it speaks to me so often. It's so raw. It's so real. Um, you know, you can buy an autobiography nowadays of somebody and you're not quite sure sometimes if you get all the details or maybe they're a bit skewed in terms of their perspective. But the Bible is just an amazing book because it really does open up uh, the, the reality of people's lives. And of course, we see some of the imperfections of people. We see some of the failures, some of the weaknesses, uh, some of the things they had to navigate. David, of course, we're not going there this morning, was involved in some of that. But the Bible says that David was chosen of God. Uh, 1 Samuel 16, you know the story well, how that Jesse, uh, that Samuel the prophet is, is told to go to the house of Jesse in Bethlehem because God's frankly fed up with the king that he got because he started well and then started to do his own thing. And so King Saul had disobeyed the Lord and God was looking for a new man that would follow him. And uh, in that whole context of God speaking to Saul, he says to obey is better than sacrifice. And we can't pay too high a, 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 a an acknowledgement, friends, of God's desire for us to be obedient to him. So he comes to Jesse's house. He, he says, I've come to anoint the new king. And you know the story, the beauty parade starts and the big brothers come through. And Samuel says, but it's got to be one of these. You know, no, no, it's not any of these. And so in some sense of desperation, and we've all been there sometimes when we feel we've heard from God and it's going belly up before our very eyes. He says, you know, you can almost see that, is there anybody else? Is there anybody else? Have, have, you, got what? have you got another son? And uh, Jesse said, well, there's David. He's the youngest. He's in the fields. In, in the literal meaning of that original text, he wasn't only youngest in terms of age, but he was the least. In other words, I've pulled the boys in. He's not even worth being called because he's just looking after the sheep. And so Je- Jesse asked David to, uh, 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 sorry, Samuel asked Jesse to bring David forward. And immediately uh, there's a resonance in Samuel's spirit that this is to be the anointed king. And it was amazing. And of course, God says, you're looking on the outward appearance, but I look on the heart. And you know, thousands of years later, nothing has changed. God's still looking on the heart. And we live in a 21st century Western culture that's obsessed with the outward appearance, you know. And, uh, you know, so Dawn French was on the other day, you know, (laughs) She, she sort of shed a bit of weight and, you know, there, there was all sorts of jibes in the press yesterday about how she's done it. Not for me to get involved in that. And then somebody else said, no, I really haven't had Botox. And did you, say, did you see Shane Warne in the paper yesterday? It looked weird, you know. <laughs> and, uh, but outward appearance, you know. And uh, he sort of got waxed all his face and, it, you know. But we're fascinated by it. We're obsessed with it. You know, we buy magazines, and I'm not saying that we shouldn't take any responsibility for our outward appearance, but God's looking on the hearts. He always is. And God looks upon the heart and takes hold of unlikely people that are passionate about him to use them for his glory and for his praise. The anointed king, at that very moment, the oil is poured over his head. It's a sign of anointing. It's always spoke of the Holy Spirit. 
And the Spirit of God comes upon David. It was in a different expression to the New Testament day, but there were times when the Spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily to do great deeds for the glory of God. The Bible says in Acts 13, as a reflection of David's heart, this, he says he was a man after God's heart. Incredible. And he goes on to say that he served God's purpose in his generation. And you know, I, I don't think we can do any more than that. I, I, th- I, think, I, I don't think we can ever, ever ask God to help us to do more than that. You see, we, you may sort of say, oh, I wish I was alive in the Victorian age. I, I wish I was alive when Jesus was born. Uh, I, I, I wish I was alive when so-and-so was. Uh, I wish I was going to be alive in another hundred years' time, whatever it is. But you're alive now. And the passion, friends, of God's heart is that we would serve God's purpose in our generation. And without digressing again, this generational thing's fascinating. And uh, part of the passion of Arena Church is that we would be a cross-generational, multi-generational church that's advancing and prevailing. See, some churches go too narrow. We're building youth church. Well, tell you what, you know, in 10 years' time, that youth church is not a youth church anymore because they've all got old. You know, so what are you going to do then? And other people say, oh, we don't want your kids in the church. It spoils it. They make too much noise. It's too much mess. You know what? That's why in some churches today, the youngest person in the church is 70-odd. Because they made a confession years ago, they didn't want kids in the church. And God gave them the desires of their heart. If you're a Christian, quite regularly, you'll flag up kids. He mentioned it in young people last week. I think there was a few intakes of breath when he says the bias towards young people in our church. But we believe it, friends. Because the passion of Arena Church that would have a long-term future in the purpose of God. And we need to keep sowing into that situation. It's fascinating for me at the moment that one of the things that recurs again and again and again in terms of a, a repurposing of a denominational group of, of churches is, is the empowering of the emerging generation. And the emerging generation for me is, is sort of around about Christian downwards. It's not just about the 20s the early 20s that you know that's fantastic but it's that emerging generation that will that, that's carrying something that, that sort of is seeing something that is 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 being it, where god's creating a capacity for them friends and i'm excited about it because i think that emerging generation is going to do something for the kingdom that is utterly amazing they may be going to do it differently. They may be going to do it through different means. They may be going to bounce stuff off each other in terms of media that will cause the kingdom to rebound all across the world, almost simultaneously at times. But you can even see, friends, in a political context, what happens when an emerging generation gets a passion. You see what's happening in North Africa. It, was all, it, it, it wasn't caused, friends, by the old politicians that got stayed. It was, co- it was caused by the emerging generation that started with Facebook and Twitter. And, and let's meet... And also in Tahir Square became a passionate sort of expression of change. Well, if that can happen in a political context, what about the kingdom of God? And it's absolutely fascinating. And so we serve our generation. I want to serve my generation. I'm placed in that generation. I'm a classic boomer, you know. So every time I get a new piece of technology, I thought, oh, <laughs> you know. And, you know, and uh, so recently I was given an iPad. By, by John Partington, you see, and, and Julie's helping me to work it all out. Ryan says to me, Ryan's another generation, an emerging generation. And, uh, and it's great what's happening with our Ryan. Some of you know about his journey, an amazing trophy of grace. And uh, he's now preached twice at, uh, at Destiny at, at Talbot Street on, on two, two um, uh, Friday nights. The second time he says, I didn't think it went as well as the first time. He says, that's the preacher's journey, right? You know. What's it going to be like third time, you know? And, uh, 
And I'm on, I think I'm on time, but David Sherman sort of said, uh, we're off to Chicago to the Willow Creek Conference, Ryan. We want you to come with us. So he's taking, they're taking Ryan and Lawrence with them. Uh, I says, you've got it before me. You know? But it's fantastic what's happening. But he says, don't open that box until I arrive. He says, the opening of the box is just incredible. This is the iPad. So I says, okay. So he opened the box and says, well, that passed me by. You know, but, <laughs> but he was drooling and slavering and, you know, and sweating and, you know, and, and straight away, you know, and you need to do this. You know. And then on month, Tuesday, we, we were in a meeting. We had Andrew Davis. Some of you know Andrew sort of was lecture, head of um, senior lecture in theology at Birmingham University now. Comes and gives us an hour's lecture on how to use an iPad. I mean, come on, Andrew. You know, where we want to start is you switch it on. You know, you, and he's sort of way, he's a real techie. He's way down there. So we got this situation where we're all on a plane and John Partington's the captain and it's a conference call and we're all sort of... And away it goes. It's just amazing, these things. Julie's helping me out. But you see, generationally, you know, um, I'm still a part of me says, what's wrong with pen and paper? You know. (laughs) But I don't want to be King Canute. Julie's had a couple of people say, I'm not on email. You'll have to send it by post. You know, come on, guys. You know, come on. I'm not that bad. You know. But it's a generational thing. And God's at work and God's doing something. We serve God's purpose in our generation. There's no end to that. People around this church who are senior in years, Christians right this morning, where sometimes you felt the enemy saying, well, you're finished. Nobody's bothered about you. You've nothing to contribute. You're a grasshopper. No, no, no. You've got an amazing contribution to make at times just by sowing into the emerging generation for them to be all that God has called them to be. So David did all that. And he emerged over a process out of a period of time to become king. It was an amazingly successful reign. In fact, it was the most successful reign in the history of the nation. And remember, as we go back this morning, we didn't collude on notes that going back to what Christian read to us earlier, the passion was that the people would possess the land. And they get kicked back to it because 10 outbid two, so they wandered for 40 years, and then eventually they came into the land, but they never took all the land that God had given to them. They never pressed through. They never overcame. They never saw complete defeating of the enemy. And we go through a period of time where the people say, we want a king, we want a king. Okay, you can have a king. And we've talked already about Saul this morning. And David comes to the throne. And things begin to change under his anointed leadership. He establishes again the place of worship at the heart of the nation. First thing he did, brought the ark back to the heart of the nation. Established a tent, the tabernacle of David, where the people worshipped and praised and blessed the Lord. And here we find in 2 Samuel 8, on the back of that, David begins to say, hang on a minute, we've still got people in this land that shouldn't be here. They shouldn't be here in the purpose of God. There's something on our backs of what God is seeking to do, and we are going to deal with it. And I want to say, friends, this morning, I'm just going to give three things very briefly in a moment, that we can get used to things in our lives, in our churches, in our context at times, and think we've got to pull up with them forever. But God's looking for a people in these days that will have the spirit of David saying, hang on a minute, there are things in our lands, whether it's personal, 
And you can apply it in whatever way this morning, whether it's corporate in terms of the church, whether it's context around us, that God doesn't want us to have in. And we need to be a people that believe that we can put those things out of the land and see an amazing victory. So the first thing is that there is an enemy to be thwarted. There is an enemy to be thwarted. In the course of time, David defeated the Philistines and he subdued them. And there are other references I'm going to make to the enemy at the moment. And the, here, here again, in terms, of, in terms of speaking about this particular subject, we can find extremes in the church. I remember a number of years ago, a, a, an elderly pastor was doing some ministry in a church of which a friend of mine was in. And uh, they told us that he'd done 27 weeks on the works of Satan. Well, God help us, friends, you know. Not on the works of Jesus, but on the works of Satan. I says, and how's the church dealing with that? Well, you can imagine, everybody was absolutely being having to be scraped off the floor. See, the extreme is, friends, that we, we, we overemphasize the enemy and we don't talk about Jesus. The other side of it, of course, is some of us carry on as, oh, there isn't an enemy. And get taken by surprise when he withstands us. But the Bible tells us, in Ephesians and in 1 Peter and in 2 Corinthians, for example, in the New Testament. And remember, the Old Testament is giving us pictures that find expression spiritually in the New Testament. Everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through endurance of the Scriptures we might have hope. It's presenting a picture of an enemy. And the enemy, friends, is spiritual. And the enemy is powerful. And the enemy is cunning. And the Bible says that we need to take our stand against the enemy be strong in the lord and in his mighty power put on the full armor of god so you can stand against his schemes for our struggle is not against flesh and blood but rulers authorities powers of the dark world and spiritual forces of evil in in the heavenly realms put on the armor of god that so that you can stand your ground and having done everything stand and we have this thing at times, oh, the enemy's going to come through the door and we make all these jokes, you know, about him with a fork in his hand and a long tail and fire around him. Well, it's far more subtle than that. It's far more subtle than that. Sometimes you can walk out of a situation and think, what was that about? It's the enemy. Why did those people talk to me like that? It's the enemy. Why do I feel like I feel? It's the enemy. An enemy to be thwarted. An enemy that wants to take land in our lives. An enemy that wants us to feel there's no way ahead. An enemy that says we've got to put up with this forever. An enemy that says, I don't mind you being a Christian as long as I can be there alongside it. And many of us, friends, I believe, many churches, many Christians have got used to the enemy taking land in their lives. And it's got to change. It has got to change. And David says, the history of this nation is that we have got used to enemy tribes being in the land that God has given to his people. And it's going to change. So an enemy to be thwarted, but secondly, a territory to be taken. You see, David could have ignored the challenge. And that's why many of us do, because it is a challenge. But he did the very opposite. And if you read the passage of scripture, he dealt with four enemy tribes. They reoccurred again and again in the scriptures. And they speak to us of uh, a sense of God doing amazing things through the victory of God in his, in, his, uh, in his servant. So first of all, as we've already read, he dealt with the Philistines. They lived to the west 
of the nation, the Philistines. And the Philistines speak of failure because time and time again they were thorn in the flesh of the people of God. Remember the Goliath, the champion course for the Philistines came from Gath, part of the Philistine country. Remember when they took the, the Ark of the Covenant, they soon realized they needed to get rid of it, but it was a sense of spiritual failure on the land under the priesthood of Eli. Uh, we're going to call that little boy Ichabod because the glory of the Lord has departed. Failure. Failure. And David says, we're going to deal with the Philistines. We're going to subdue them. We're going to rout them. We're going to push them out of the land. And I wonder this morning if you've got used to living with failure. The fact is, friends, we've all failed at times. We may have failed in terms of doing what we ought to have done in the eyes of God. But we may have failed in terms of a plan. We may have failed in terms of a scheme. We may have failed in terms of an aspiration. We may have failed in terms of wanting to do something and it's what worked out. And so we could go on and on and on. And we've got used to the fact that we've got to live with it. And the Philistines stand as a giant over us and say, you're a failure. And God says this morning, you need to put that to the extremities of your life and thwart it forever because I do not speak failure over you. Secondly, they dealt with the Moabites. Verse 2. And the Moabites were to the east. And the Moabites spoke of compromise. I won't go into too much detail, friends, but if you read Genesis 19.37, you'll find that the Moabite tribe began out of an incestuous relationship. It was a tribe that was utterly corrupt and immoral, that did iniquitous things even in those times that aren't even worthy of uh, public discussion this morning. Compromise. And the reality is today, friends, that very often the enemy, subtly at times, both morally and spiritually, wants to compromise his people. And we need to defeat it in the name of Jesus. The Bible says, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. In other words, don't be compromised. Don't be conformed to this world. Romans 12 wants to do. Don't be conformed. It doesn't mean we have to live weird. It doesn't mean that we have to be odd. But it does mean, friends, we have to be different. And there are all sorts of different things that come to all of us that would compromise us externally and internally, where we'd live with two lots of things. We'd live with God, but we'd live with something else. We'd say we want to do God's work, but we also know we're going off there. And we're caught in the middle. It's the spirit of the Moabites. And it needs to be defeated. The third tribe that they defeated in the New International, it talks about the Arameans, but it could also be described in some Bibles as the Syrians. Same, same group. They came from the north, of course. And the Syrian tribe spoke of fear. You can read again and again in the scriptures. They were a fearsome fighting force. They were the people that came down from the north to take people captive originally when they turned from the purposes of God. Fear. And you can get used to living with fear. Lots of people have got used to living with fear. Get up every morning with fear. Frightened about the future, frightened about tomorrow, frightened about how the kids are going to grow up, frightened about the job, frightened about all sorts of things, frightened about the world being imploding in on itself, frightened about everything that they read on the news. Fear. It's the Syrian spirit. Little wonder that so many times in the scriptures God says, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. And if you've got used to living with fear, 
It's time to put it out of your life in the name of the Lord. And the fourth tribe that they dealt with was the Edomites to the south, verse 13. And David became famous after striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. And Edom speaks of deceitfulness. The descendants of Esau were the Edomite tribe. And you know the story of Esau, how that he duped his, his uh, brother Jacob from his birthright in Genesis. The ramifications of that were huge, absolutely huge. A deceitful spirit, deceived by Jacob, taken in, lost what was rightfully his because the twister, the deceiver came along and he just, he just, he just went, he just absolutely gave himself to it. And brothers and sisters, the Jacob spirit is still out there. It will times deceive us. The, the Bible says that the enemy sometimes masquerades as an angel of light. And we need a discerning heart in these days. We need to see what is of God and what is not of God. We need something that resonates in our spirit. The Bible says, uh, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2.11, that we're not unaware of his schemes. It seems to me that that's speaking of cunningness, of artfulness, of, of seeking to get in at times and take us off our God. And Esau was taken off his guard and gave away what was God-ordained in his life because of the deceitfulness of his brother. Lost it. And the Edomites carried that spirit on into their history. And brothers and sisters, today, you know, we we must be so careful that we don't allow ourselves to be entrapped and ensnared in things that take us away from what God has got for our lives. So an enemy to be thwarted, a territory to be taken, and as I close, a victory to be tasted. Isaiah 43. Do not be afraid. Verse 6, for I am with you, and I will bring your children from the east, and I will gather them from the west, and I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. I want you just to think, friends, today, you can apply this personally, you can apply, we can apply it corporately to the life of the church. What stands at times to the north and the south and the east and the west of our lives? Are the things that we've got used to, are the things that have become embedded in our life that we say, well, we've just got to live with those have we, have, we, have we, friends, become used to, to, to failure? Have we, have we put up with compromise? Have we sort of said, well, fear is part of my life? Have we been deceived and think that there's no way out? We speak today to the north, the south, and the east and the west to say, God, we give those things to you. And those people that are impacted by those things, we say to the enemy today, give them up in the name of Jesus. Verses 6 and 14, the Lord gave David victory. Everywhere he went. And in verse 15, it says that he administered just judgment and justice in the land. This was one of the most amazingly successful, prosperous, forward advancing expressions of the history of the nation through a man that said, I'm not going to put up with what it was like. I'm going to see God bring about what he wants to do. And friends, when we do that, God can do amazing things in our lives for his praise and for his glory. It says in verse 15 that David reigned over all of Israel, doing what was just and right for all the people. Amazing. Absolutely 
amazing. And, you know, he did that out of a response to what God was doing in him. It was an expression of faith. It was put into action. He obeyed the Lord, and he saw God do great things. And we can sit around forever with some source of spiritual inertia saying, God, give us the victory. God, give us the victory. God, give us the victory. I think God responds to people that take expressions of faith. I think God responds to people that pray. I think God responds to people that say, I'm going to do that different in my life. I think God responds to people that say, that's no, no longer going to be part of our church. I think God responds to those people that take action in his name. And as we do that, he comes alongside us to do what only he can do. You know that, as I close, many of the Psalms were written in the context of God doing specific things that we read about in Samuel and Chronicles. And Psalm 60 is a psalm that was written at this particular time, and it concludes, and I read from the message with these verses. The psalmist says, Give us help for the hard task, because human help is worthless. In God we'll do our very best. He'll flatten the opposition for good. You see, there's, there's the synergy. There's the cooperation. There's us saying, we, we can't do it on our own. And friends, we can't do anything on our own. And frankly, we don't want to. We don't want to build a kingdom for ourselves. We want to build the kingdom of God. We don't want to see a great church advance because somehow we're doing it. We want to see it because Jesus is building his church. But again and again and again, the principle is that he works with and in people. And just sort of as we think about this season of defeating, I just throw that into the mix this morning, not to cut across anything that we're planning to say or do over the coming weeks. But just to encourage us this day, not to get used to things in our lives that God doesn't want to be there. Not to get things used to things that dwell in our lands that actually need to be put to the extremities of it and banished forever. And this morning, let's deal with those issues that so often can come to us. Let's say failure, it's over. Fear, you're banished. Compromise, no more. Deceitfulness, it's gone. So that we might, like David, personally individually, corporately as church, see the kingdom advance because God gives us victory everywhere we go. Amen.